0: Hi everyone, this is James from the Yin and Yang podcast. I just wanted to add to this intro for uh, this podcast with Peter Kageyama, a writer from that we spoke to last year for the release of his first novel, Hunter's Point. Uh, in this intro, I just wanted to describe a little bit about. Uh, there's this photo at the end of his first novel of his father. We mentioned it briefly in this podcast, and I'm going to put it up on the screen here. Um, if you're if you're listening, I'll be, I'll describe the picture. It's a black and white picture of a young uh, man uh on his way to internment camp a young ja- uh, japanese american man uh on his way to inter- the internment camps and actually this photo was taken by dorothea lang dorothea lang is a very famous uh, she's very famous for the taking photos during the depression era in the u.s and uh i was so very surprised about this so i asked peter hey w- you know how did you find this photo and he mentioned that his family had um uh, brought up like finding this photo to him when he was maybe younger but he didn't really pay much attention to it until like years later when he he noticed that there was a the new york times had a photo collection online about japanese american internment and so he clicked on the story and whoa he found the um he found the photo, so I'm sharing this story, uh, you know, with the author's permit with Peter's permission, and uh, yeah, he saw he's he's like, whoa, there's a picture of my father, and he found out that there was a show of the of physical prints of of these photos in Washington D.C., and he went out and he reached out to the gallery and got a print of the photo. Unfortunately, uh, he doesn't believe that his father saw the photo, uh, and at late years later when he went to visit san francisco he actually recreated the photo um, and i'll put up the picture there where peter recreates the photo of his father uh, in san francisco Um, and and peter recounted to us that was probably the worst day of his father's life having to leave his whole life behind and go to the tournament in the second novel uh we return with cats Takemoto and uh we'll uh, listen to this podcast and we'll give you more in-depth details about this novel the 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 direction it takes uh, with the characters and also one other thing i i, f- I forgot to mention in this podcast was feo chin fiodor chin he was uh a yin and young podcast uh, guest uh a few, uh, right you know near the beginning of our podcast and strangely enough and by you know very cool coincidence he's also the voice actor he voices the audiobooks for Peter's uh, books so he did the voice acting for Hunter's Point as well as uh, this novel Midnight Climax and I think it's very uh, you know fitting given that Fio Chin, Fyodor Chin has, is, is Asian American he has uh, Chinese ancestry so and with this book we noticed that uh, there's a lot more focus on Chinatown in San Francisco and there's a lot more different languages spoken. So I, I do think it's a very fitting uh voice acting choice. And without further ado, here's the podcast. All right. Welcome back to Yin and Yang the podcast. Uh this is round two, round du the <laughs> with uh Peter Kageyama. Yay. Yay uh, Peter Kageyama is a uh, Japanese American uh, writer. He's from Ohio. He's currently on his book tour for Midnight Climax, the second installment of the Cat uh, uh novels that he's coming out with. And I believe there's a third one in the works, according to like... Yes the last entry of of the last book. So, uh very exciting and uh so if if you haven't uh listened to our last podcast, we did a, a podcast with uh Peter, it was like a year ago, I believe a year ago. Just yes. Over a year ago. And, yeah. yeah, and that was for his first book called Hunter's Point, which details the uh the introduces uh, us to Cats Takamoto and uh Molly and also shig morale his is his 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 uh uh what should we say his trusty sidekick right?
1: <laughs> okay. yeah i think that's yeah. a good way to put it
0: sure yeah and in this book uh so in that last book we were exploring uh issues with government cover-ups we're also getting a very a very inside look into san francisco and that time period with a beat poetry scene and also yeah. with um you know the growing uh it becoming a growing uh center for homosexuals and people uh, L- the lgbtq community and also we get insight into the kind of like the repercussions of japanese internment and what it was co- like coming back um so yeah if you haven't already please take a listen to that episode it's uh, we delve into those topics and now we're back with this uh New book and before we start, how are you doing? How are you feeling?
1: I'm doing great. Um, you know, it's uh, it's winter here in Florida, which is really kind of a you know oxymoron uh, for folks. It's uh, it's sunny, it's warm, it's it's a good time to be in Florida. My um, as an as a former Ohioan, you know, I was born there. I never thought February could be such a nice month uh, there. So it's actually yeah, it's it's a good
0: time, like I said, to to be here. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, I'm here in Yokohama and it just, uh, so I moved. So when we last spoke, I was in the Kansai area in, in the yes. Mie prefecture. Yeah. And, uh, now I moved last year to this area, uh, to be, clo- uh, we're closer to my wife's family. Okay. And, uh, so it snowed like two days. Oh, it was like two days uh. ago. Yeah, it was the it's the first snow of the season, and it was just like pretty, like pretty cool, like (laughs) seeing like the snow and like and also, but like getting around was treacherous. So no, so we just walked. I had snowshoes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then Dan, I remember in in the last podcast we had with Peter. You mentioned Yokohama was your fave. Is it still your one of your favorite cities? For me. For for Dan, I mean, Dan Man, mentioned yeah. that, yeah. For
2: me, yeah, it, it's Yokohama is still one of my favorite cities. My um, my mom grew up there, so I still, um, I I would like to go back more often, but my mom now lives with me, so that's not going to happen. Yeah.
0: I you know what? It wasn't until I lived here that I realized how big Yokohama is. Uh, Peter, yeah. have you visited Yokohama or? Um,
1: I've been to the area once uh, back when I I was an exchange student in high school. So this is like oh. you know, forty years ago. But my grandparents actually, um, uh, retired my, my, my family, my grandparents, uh, were from Chigasaki, which I'm assuming mm. is close to where you're at. Yeah. So. Very cool.
0: Yeah. So, um, let's catch up. Uh, how has it. So when we last spoke, you were working on, um, you were actually working on this book midnight, this midnight. Book, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah. If you want to, so, uh. There we go. Midnight yes. climax, <laughs> not
1: erotica. Believe it or not, not yes. erotica. <laughs> I
0: uh, so it, uh, so from the last time you said you were like two thirds of the way through uh, when we were speaking to you, and I guess since that time you finished the book. And how was that process going? From like, so you went from your so. Well, let's let's go back to Hunter's point that your first fiction book how is the process promoting that and then moving on towards uh, the second uh, book
1: yeah um this, all the stuff around you know uh the book the 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 promotion the you know the, doing the interviews and things like that um it's great but it's also it runs contrary to what you kind of, what you kind of want to do which is right. especially when you feel like you're getting momentum in a story and it feels like um it was hard to get some of that momentum back. Like I think I said, yeah, you, we were about two thirds of the way through that. Um, it came off pretty well. I'm very happy with the end result, but it is, you know, this is sort of at odds uh, with that. I mean, I love talking about it. Um, I love thinking about it in different ways, getting good questions uh, about the, uh, the material but it is also, it does take away from the actual writing. And this third book is proving to be more of a challenge, you know, mm. um, first two, it's like, you don't know what you don't know. It's like, yeah, of course I'm going to go, well, let's go write a book. And then you just sort of, it 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 happens like, Oh my God. And then it's like, Oh, and then it happened again. And this time it's uh, proving to be a little bit more of a challenge, a little bit more um, broken up into different uh, uh, timings and just lots of like personal stuff that's getting in the way life, you know, um, but now, it, I, I we were in San Francisco three weeks ago, which I think kind of it feels like I've got it back on track. Mm. You know what? we'll see, but uh, yeah, it's writing is a weird kind of thing. It's you know, <laughs> it, it'd be great if we could summon it on you know on command. Um, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't.
2: Do you have a process for? I mean, I know that I, I've met some writers, and when they have like a deadline of some sort. Um, uh, this one particular writer, he goes to Vegas and books a room for like a week and just Ooh. like locks himself into that, in that room. I don't know why Vegas. I don't know <laughs> yeah, if it's that's like, of the that's like I, of things. I, I really want
1: to challenge myself to not go out, you know, there because it's like I don't want to be distracted by any of that. Um, no. Um my process is probably I, I've I've have a few places that I feel comfortable uh, when I'm writing. Um, coffee shops, certainly. Uh, there's a couple places in the house where I actually feel comfortable writing. Um, usually out on the porch at night, um, sitting out there, mm. you know, and headphones to sort of distract whatever. Um, but yeah, it's uh, there, I, again, I don't have a magic you know thing. I wish I could say, oh yeah, I'll, I'll go to Vegas for a week and lock myself in a in a room. I don't I tend to think I would not get good results that way. (laughs) Mm,
2: Interesting. Everybody has their own own sort of process. So you gotta figure
1: it out. Yeah, whatever works, you know, I think for you. I think to me it feels more like it feels more like training for something. I I used to do, you know, uh, I used to be a cyclist, I used to do triathlons and stuff like that. And it just was that sort of that regular discipline of like you're gonna swim, you're gonna bike, you're gonna run, you're gonna do this. And you just rinse and repeat. And after a while, you, it just becomes a habit. Um, I think it's trying to get back into that point where it's writing becomes a habit again. Because can, you can fall out of that. And I feel like I, in the last few months, I've
0: kind of fallen out of that um, again. Life mm. happens. Do you believe in writer's block? Or like, no. The, no. Big one of your No.
1: <I'm, laughs> I mean, I'm real for some people. I don't feel blocked. I just feel like... Um, the story just hasn't quite revealed itself to me. It's like, I'm thinking about it. It's like, I know where it's going. I'm just not quite sure how it's going to get there. Um, and then something will click. You'll read something. You'll see something. You'll you'll be watching something else on TV. You go, that was an interesting twist. And you go, oh my God, I could use something like that. And it just, the pieces you know, start to fall in place. It's mm. not blocked. It's just, it's not that it's not there. It's just, it hasn't quite revealed itself yet.
0: Yeah, I've heard some people uh, Mention uh, talk about writer's block and yeah, sometimes it becomes like this mythical like monster you have to battle, right? Yeah. But in in actuality, I do I do like that analogy of I, I've done some writing myself. I, I did screenwriting as my masters, and uh, getting that habit is it's like yeah, like you mentioned, like mm-hmm. getting the workout in, getting those words out, um, even if it's you know if even if it's just like vomit, like <laughs> it's like you're just yeah. spewing it out i guess getting that exercise but uh no no that's inspiring because i think getting back into that groove it's it's tough i I, I, i've been out of that groove for a while i've been trying to get back into it myself as well uh but Mm -hmm. for yourself do you have a uh maybe not so much as a process but like a routine like you have to have like some people are very like um Yes. erotic about it like oh the, okay the hot water has to be here i have to have my cup of coffee and then you know like do you have a like spacing the desk has to be right like do you have anything like that or no
1: i, I usually do need a beverage i need my okay. noise canceling headphones block out everything except whatever is you know uh is playing i think you know being comfortable you know is a good comfort uh you know uh, Good, good seating, good lighting. If I'm in a, in a coffee shop, I kind of, li- I like the distraction of the coffee shop. You see other people, but you don't really see them. You know, you you kind of hear, you know, you kind of hear this sort of white noise of conversation that's going on. Um, that's fine. It's almost, you know, it sort of puts you into that, whatever, the the zone, um, uh. ideally, you know, there. Um, But I, I, I think more or less, I, I'm gravitating more and more towards wanting to write at home, And right now it's proving to be a little bit of a challenge. My wife and I are in the process of selling our condo. We we purchased another place together. You know, we just got married about a year and a half ago. So we're, you know, pre-construction, we purchased a new place and it's actually very close to where we we live now, but it's kind of been disruptive because we're in the process of like, you know, consolidating stuff. Um, putting a lot of stuff into storage and then showing your place, which is a whole other thing, you know, oh, making nice. you ready, you know, uh, stripping it down and it doesn't feel like I live here anymore. It feels like I'm sort of like, you know, it's like, I'm in a showroom uh, now we had right. a show today. I had to get out of the house for, you know, a couple of hours. And then everything just has to be pristine. It's like, Oh my God. It's like, I don't feel quite like I live here right now. And that <laughs> is kind of unsettling because this is the place where I want to write. Um mm but it's proving to be, it's like, eh, it's yeah, Mm. I'll get over it. But uh, (laughs) at the moment it's, it is just a little weird. I don't know if you've ever gone through the process of trying to sell a home. Um, It's yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. My wife has done it several times and I'm following her lead. Mm. Um, But uh, like I said, it just doesn't feel, I'm not comfortable. Let's put it that way. In the uh, same way that you know, when you feel like you when you when you feel like you want to write, you feel like you're in a comfortable you know sort of space. Mm-hmm. It hasn't felt like that lately. So, and then, or, what, is a, yeah.
2: what is the, yeah, what is real estate market like in Florida? I'm sorry, it's a little getting a little derailed, but what is? The, I mean, I'm just trying to anticipate how long it's going to be like just for you to sell your place in order to move into.
1: Ideally, yeah, uh, Florida real estate, especially in. Um, uh, some of the, the bigger cities I'm, I live in, St. Petersburg, um, it has not really cooled off much at all. Um, there's still a, a v- very strong market um, here. So, and February, March, April are the high season for sales. We're optimistic that we will sell relatively soon. And then we have the other problem of basically being homeless for a few months until the other place <laughs> is ready. Uh, we'll right. jump into that bridge when we get
0: there so gotcha i noticed the artwork is that the same artwork he had last time is Is that a yes. famous uh uh no it's a, uh, he's a
1: filipino um artist by the name of tony etheron my uh my wife is a big yeah. fan of his he's based here in florida he's been around for several decades she's got several pieces by him but uh he does beautiful work mm. at scale sometimes so uh Yeah, um, she's introduced this artist to her, her sister and several other people as well.
0: Tony Ethel. Okay, check it out. So for this, uh, this, I guess, uh, going back to the the first book, Hunter's Point. uh, So in the, in Hunter's Point, we deal with like, uh, government cover up of like, the nuclear contamination the real nuclear yeah. contamination of hunter's it really was, yes yeah, yeah and hunter's point and there's a sense of it's an interesting dynamic that you you paint because cat uh katsushiro Takemoto, he uh was uh this fictional character that's mm-hmm. loosely based off you know some some stories you've you've mentioned of your father, and then uh and, uh, and several other yeah a lot of those
1: other guys from the four forty
0: second and four forty second. So he's he's this very decorated soldier that served his country very bravely. Yes. And then in these books, uh, uh, uh he's going against the government. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know. So it's an interesting uh for me at least it's an interesting dynamic. I, I was wondering if you could speak to that. Is that uh. Yeah. I guess there's the first, I guess, betrayal, I guess, is what I'm trying to, is, is, yeah. is a word that comes to mind. There's the there's the executive order 9066, um, yes. and that's the order for Japanese and Japanese-Americans during uh, World War II to be interned. And so that's the betrayal of the country to the people. And then in turn, there is the, but then the government asks the young boys, hey, yeah. Yes uh, or no? Want do you, you to are serve. you? Yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. want to serve? And then there was the gung ho people, the four, four, forty second. Yeah. That. Yes, I want to prove myself as a as an American. Go yes. for broke. And then there's the no no boys who you mentioned in your new book. Uh, oh yeah, I, I mentioned it in our last interview. So you actually read yeah. it. I'm so. <laughs> you, in
1: <laughs> fact, that was uh, that was a nice takeaway from our last conversation. Is I did read it, and it's uh, it's kind of brilliant. It's kind it's very sad in some ways. Yeah. Um, that's a whole other story about you know Okada himself, but I think it stands as a testament of like sort of conscientious um, ob- you know um, uh, objection or dissent. Conscientious dissent, I think, is a better way to put it. Mm. Um, but the Nono boys were incredibly principled about what they did, um, and I think Katz is also very principled. He decides, you know, as you say, he 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 does go and is the uh, the good soldier. But it seems to me that he's not anti-government at, at all. I think what he is calling to task in both books is when our is when the government fails to live up to its own ideals, um, when the government is supposed to take care of the soldiers and the people. You know that where you work shouldn't be poisoning you, shouldn't be killing the environment and potentially you know uh, shortening your life. Um, that the government shouldn't be running um, <laughs> brothels. And dosing, you know, uh, people who come in, you know, uh, having prostitutes dose Johns uh, with psychedelics drugs, and just to sort of experiment on them to see what would happen, and you know, to me, those are incredible. Those are the bigger betrayals because they're betraying, mm-hmm. our, betraying our ideals as a country.
0: Mm. So for these, so then, so Katz is not anti-government, but he's no. he's anti evil. I guess or anti. I say good. I say a couple
1: times in the books, Katz doesn't like bullies. I don't think he Press, doesn't like yeah. people who, he doesn't like power that's trying to get away with something and then covering it up. I think that offends him, you know, uh, at his core. I, I think it's, it offends most of us uh, mm-hmm. at our core when, uh, when the people in power uh, abuse that power uh, to their own ends or to, you know, so, you know, su- suspect ends. I mean, we could debate whether or not, you know, um, Midnight Climax, which was the actual CIA operation around this. That's where the title, right. whether or not that was justified, because they thought that the Chinese and the Russians were doing sort of mind experiments as well. Therefore, we as a government have to do that in order to keep up. I think it's in hindsight, it's bullshit, you know, but in, uh, you know, in you know 1959, the height of the Cold War, maybe, you know, that perspective looks a little different. I don't know.
0: So yeah, oh, as as Peter mentioned, it's not erotica, but there are some erotic scenes there. <laughs> yeah, there's a <laughs> for writing. So yeah, go it's ahead. It's more
2: yeah. about the hypocrisy of it all, right? So yeah. we yeah. we portray America as this great shining on democracy, and we are you know very we're the heroes of the story, but in reality, there are a lot of things that there are a lot of flaws in what we do. And even now it's kind of like that. And then uh, I know that Katz is very drawn to people who are just like him, very principled, like the officer Blackburn and such. Blackburn? Blackstone, yes. Blackstone.
1: Who was a real guy too. I discovered that in my research. Oh. Yeah, Elliot Blackstone um, is a a cop in in the book. And I discovered him reading about this because he was uh, one of the first uh, police officers in San Francisco in the early 1960s. He was assigned to work, um, to work with the, um, the the gay community, this is revolutionary at the time. Right. Um, and he, you know, was a religious man, and he was a, a straight religious man. Uh, but he was uh, he was uh, a very community minded person. And in fact, uh, after he retires, he ends up being the head of, or um, uh, the grand marshal. At the Pride Parade in the early 2000s, I thought that's oh. a wonderful sort of sort of full circle on, on something like that. That there were you know um, elements of there there were the beginnings of of that sort of understanding of different types of communities, and that's what kind of comes across I think in the in this particular book. And Elliot is going to be actually in the third book. I've, I've he he makes another appearance there as well because he's an interesting character, and like like Morau, he was a real guy uh, from that time period.
0: I don't I don't believe I asked this last time but when writing uh historical figures do you uh do you have to do you have to pass anything legally do you have to talk to what no, no. no. As, I
1: I uh told by uh friends who are lawyers uh, and uh if you look it up basically just make sure you write about dead people that's kind uh. of the, <laughs> the, the um yeah uh but again you I also don't want to uh, I mean, these people still have, I'm sure they still have family. Yeah. And in fact, um, it was interesting because uh, Shig's grandniece, um, she and I connected on Instagram. Oh, wow. uh, So uh, I sent her and her her father, who would be Shig's um, nephew, uh, Mm. copies of the book. Unfortunately, I've never heard back from her. It's like, I need to follow up with her uh, Mm. on that. Hey, uh. I, you know it's like did i do your uncle great you know great uncle justice here i hope i did mm. um well you know having had a cease and desist, you know thing from uh, <laughs> anymore, or anything like that so but it would be kind of nice to I, i'd really actually like to talk to her father the, you know who was she's right. nephew mm-hmm. um that would be pretty cool uh, thank you reminding for for reminding me of that i will i will follow up with her on that yeah how that's does she something reach out I to you.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah how instagram. did she reach out to you instagram i know that part but i mean because I actually like
1: found, there was a post on uh, on Instagram and it was about Shig. It was something about the uh, you know Howl and the um, uh, the obscenity trial that he was part of. Right, and you know of course I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I looked at some of the comments, and there was this woman says, oh yeah, that was my uncle. It's like what? It's like so. <laughs> and I looked her up, and it turns out it's her her great uncle. So it would you know, um, yeah, because she's in her probably late twenties, I think something like that. Awesome. okay yeah so that's how we connected it's like just so read your comments because occasionally <laughs> there's be something really interesting in there that's like oh my goodness i had no idea
0: okay it was a uh it was a a post that you did on shig morale or... it wasn't even a post that i did i think it might oh, have been so...
1: Den Show or something like that oh uh, okay post. And I, uh, I follow them obviously on instagram they put out a lot of great content and uh, something about Shig, it, must, it must've been like an anniversary maybe of um, uh, of the trial. Something came up and there was, you know, a number of comments, you know, there. And I just happened to notice that one about, oh yeah, that was my uncle. It's like, crazy. That's great.
0: Yeah. And for those who don't know, Shig Morale was, a uh, he worked at the City Lights bookstore in San Francisco. And he's famously known as, the poor guy who sold uh, how uh, hows uh, Allen Ginsberg's howl to a undercover FBI agent, and then yes. was embroiled in a trial about free speech yeah. and yeah
1: <laughs> obscenity charges. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So for uh, those who don't know, for uh, so with Hunter's point, we get uh, we're introduced to cats Molly Shig, and also this the government cover up there about the nuclear waste, and also you know. Yeah. Land grabs and mm-hmm. you know, extortion, kidnapping. For the second book, what was your so for the for the first book it was kind of, I guess, let's start with love. First for your first book, you had the story and you, you were in love with the city of San Francisco and you wanted to explore that time, that such a very interesting time and yeah. place and how did it how did you want to shift to the second book you're still still based in san francisco yes. i'm curious about like uh, what so for that first book we talked about you know your reasons for writing that but what made you kind of like take maybe a, a different turn in this book
1: yeah I, this one was more I, I fell in love with those characters you know cats and molly and shig and i i wanted to revisit them i wanted to know more about them and so i did you know started to dig into that as you said san francisco was sort of the emphasis the impetus for the first book the second one is a deeper dive into um, cats and Molly and Shig, especially cats. Um, part of the the deep dive had to do with what does you know what was the effect on, on guys like him uh, of the war. He was wounded, and he you know he was decorated in this you know uh, bloody incident you know, and we recount that in the book. But they didn't call it PTSD back then. They didn't. They called it battle fatigue, you know, uh, shell shock. And it really was not a well diagnosed or well understood sort of uh, condition. But I'm sure so many guys uh, were suffering from that. And this time I was able to talk to a really good friend of mine who's actually my wife's best friend. And she's a clinical psychiatrist. Um, mm-hmm. And she actually used to work at the VA hospital here in St. Petersburg, actually ran the VA hospital here in St. Petersburg. Um, and so I got to, I, I got to, uh, really interview and and discuss with her what PTSD is like. What would these soldiers be like? And I actually let her read an early um, version of the story to help me say, would this be an would this be a real conversation? Would they really do this? And and she gave me like here's some here's the way uh, a, a doctor would actually talk to his patient. They wouldn't do this. They would do this. You can't say that. Okay. And she really helped me understand that condition. And I hope that comes across sort of authentically. Um, because it's not only cats, it's actually one of the main, the, the new characters that we actually meet in this story is another uh, soldier, uh, who's been violently, um, uh, abused and, um, uh, experimented on. And he is kind of the, he's the ticking time bomb in this. And of course, you know, how, how he deals with that is part of, you know, this, of, of the, the challenge that he and cats both have. Uh, of trying to overcome these in these inner wounds that you know
0: the war and unfortunately other people inflicted upon them
3: mm-hmm.
0: well like research uh what kind of research did you delve into for this so it sounds like you researched PTSD with your your mm-hmm. wife's friend who yeah. uh, who who's very familiar who who works in that field yep. uh what about like specifically Chinatown Dan and I are uh you know yeah. of Asian you know oh, yeah. I, my family's from Taiwan,, uh, but I know for the early for Chinatown in San Francisco, a lot of the early immigrants were from like tai, to, Toisan, tai, uh Taishan, or from uh, Hong Kong uh well Guangdong, like Canton and then uh mm. so I was curious uh, there's the the Chinatown makes a much bigger presence in the second yes. book and I was yeah. curious about the research there, especially into the tongs and and the relationships yeah. there. Um,
1: I credit in the first book and I credit that again, the organization in the second book, there's a uh, an organization called San Francisco city guides, and they do these amazing tours all over the city. And I reached out to them again. Um, and, uh, they connected me with, uh, this husband and wife who kind of both do tours. Uh, but they, uh, they took me through Chinatown. And we walked into alleys and he was telling me stories about, okay, this was this. And, and those alleys actually appear in the book. You know, um, Ross mm-hmm. Alley, Cooper Alley. Um, and sort of, there's the obvious side of Chinatown. You know, you walk around, you see this, but then we walked into some of these, these back alleys. And that was where stories about the Tong uh, really, you know, he started to, to fill in sort of the history around that. And then you dig deeper into um you know uh that on my own but yeah it's again you, you walk there you smell it you see it you hear it it's like okay this is you know how do i bring this this uh this place to life mm. uh, and yeah I, you're right it's, you know, chinatown is a much bigger uh, part of this story
0: so for the like uh the language so in the first book we we were introduced to the word uh, uh so dan i Dan, you speak a little bit of Cantonese, right? Or, or a little
2: bit, yes. Okay,
0: so like gu- Guai Po, is it Guai Po? Guai Po. Yeah. Guai po. So white it's like white devil a, woman. White woman, white devil woman, or, uh, like, uh, Guai is like character for uh devil, and then Po is like uh older woman, or yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah. So that that term is mentioned. Uh, I'm curious to understand, like linguistically, like how how because you you introduce like. In your first book as well you introduced japanese irishai masen and mm-hmm. like uh, on and giri and you also mentioned that again in this book uh how, what was like the language research and when when do you throw those in because those little bits i think help make the world more yeah. authentic you know spe- specifically especially for me who's like I, I really i enjoy language
1: yeah yeah um hey you know there's an amazing uh tool out there it's you know wikipedia you know and following <laughs> seriously following you know the the trail down there and then finding those those that, that terminology I'd love to say where I don't even remember where I found whypole uh it might have even been in some other novel it's like and then you look it up go oh my god that's a great word it's like how do I you know how do I end up using that um but yeah I think being uh curious uh, um Digging, you know, deeper and it's like following the. it's like, oh, this and following the history and then you know, reading more about this particular character. And it all it just makes for a deeper sort of understanding of it. I, I don't claim to be an expert on, you know, uh, certainly on linguistics or language um, or, you know, or history or cultural anthropology, any of that stuff. It's like I, I find enough to make what I think is a good story. And hopefully folks will will generally agree.
0: Mm. Do you make a distinction with like Mandarin and Cantonese which, which characters speak Mandarin, which characters speak Cantonese?
1: Yeah. Um, I wish I, I, uh, no, not so much. I think when I, when I was looking at those words, I was you know conscious of the fact that most of the uh, immigrants had come through, or uh, at least at this time, at that time would have come through Hong Kong.
3: Mm-hmm. So yes.
1: it was more Cantonese. So when I, you know, when you look for those um, uh, words, uh, yeah, I think I was looking uh, for Cantonese, you know, you know, not English to Cantonese, not English to Mandarin.
0: Mm. That All might, right. yeah, that might be tougher to find because Cantonese, yeah, it's a little bit, it's less, it's not as prominent. It's still very prominent, but it's not yeah. as prominent as like finding uh, databases for like Mandarin per se. Because I, uh, I noticed like, like sometimes it'll be, it'd be mixed, but, which is fair because I do know that there are a lot of, you know, some... Uh, Cantonese speakers who also speak Mandarin as well. Because, yeah. uh, like, Dan, like, I think your family, they they kind of, they can mix between the two, right? <laughs> right.
2: Yeah, my family, they they immigrated through Hong Kong. And so, um, and they lived in Hong Kong for a period of time. But they can speak both. They definitely have an accent. They don't have the the northern accent of, of, of northern Chinese people. Oh, right, yeah, they right. curl their tongues when they have the R's.
0: So, or, <laughs> beijing or yeah 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 or, they uh,
2: sound more like chalian fat and uh, michelle yo than they do um Li when he speaks mandarin
0: ah uh, right, right right uh so uh yeah one thing so going back to midnight climax so uh there this is there's like uh uh there are some scenes with so i think it's difficult I think for writers, especially like in modern times, because when you write about minorities, there's always a sense of like, okay, let's not tokenize these nine minorities. let's not exoticize them. So where do you find that uh, fine line? Because there is yeah. uh, a history of Asian female fetishization, right? Yeah. And there's yeah. a there's a there is a sexualization of Asian females. You know, part of that is due to World War II. There are you know mm-hmm. there are, unfortunately, there were many there were many Japanese women who had to take up the job. Mm-hmm. In order to survive, to provide for their families in post-war in in a, a decimated Jap, Jap, Japan, yeah. so there are some you know, and then there's war brides and stuff like that. So yeah. how how do you as a writer do you navigate that? You don't think about it too much. You just try to respect each character. I'm I'm curious about that because yeah. there 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 is um there are pe there is a dead prostitute female Asian. Yeah. Asian American prostitute in this uh, book. Yeah. And that's always, I, I remember seeing that in like this movie, was it like dirty little secrets or something like that. And it was, it, it was shown to me in like Asian American class. Right. And yes, yeah, I know. Prof- from,
1: yeah. From like yeah. 20 years ago, something like right, that. Right.
0: Right. Right. From, from yeah, a long yeah. time ago. And mm-hmm. you, we've come a long way from that. But like, I remember my Asian American professor, uh, studies professor saying like, okay, this is an example of Asian American uh, fetishization, but I'm not saying you're doing that. I'm just, I'm curious about how you write in such a way yeah. to maybe not to play into those things. Yeah.
1: Well, the character kind in order for the Tong to be involved, the character who died had to be Chinese. So there was right. that. Um, I I actually kind of poke fun at that in, well, not poke fun. I I, I consciously wrote about that because in the book they talk about, you know, there's this, uh, again, a Chinese uh, prostitute. It's being observed by um, the CIA agents who are running this, you know, this drug operation essentially. Um, and they call her Susie. And I make the note that it had to do with uh, the world of Susie Wong, which had yes. come out right around that time. And it was, if you remember, it was a Broadway play and then it was, a, it eventually became a movie. And it was about sort of the exotic Asian women, and they these two uh, white CIA um, uh, officers are talking about that, and they call her Susie, um, and it's sort of derogatory. And I thought by pointing that out, um, it kind of took away from again as an you know as an Asian man writing you know about a kind of a stereotype. Yeah, I was conscious of that, um, but again, in order to make the story work, because of who she is connected to yeah. that it leads to the next part of the, of the story um but you're right there is that sort of the fetish 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 here <laughs> <fetish, laughs> right. um but there's also at the corresponding uh, for men there's the neutering of of, of asian males right yes. and you know uh the old adage was is Bruce Lee gave balls back to a whole gen, you know, generations of, you know, of, of Asian men uh, mm. there. And I think, you know, in his own way, Katz is kind of like that. He's not, you know, he's not ag- overly aggressive or anything like that, but he is certainly, he's not meek when it comes to, you know, um, standing up for himself. So I think that, you know, you try to write, you try to be authentic to, to the characters, give them, something beyond, you know, and, you know, a, a, a cultural stereotype sure. uh, there. Um, I hope I did that. I hope that, you know, the, the Asian prostitute thing uh, is not too much. Uh, oh, the other thing I will say is I am conscious of the fact that it, at that time, this, this book takes place in like 1959, the word Oriental would have been used a lot and right. I only use it a couple of times. And I try to, you know, I try to use, you know, Asian, um, because I think it is more it sounds better to me now uh, but I fully get that at the time it they would have been saying oriental and I even there's a point where I talk about Indian trails and I make a note in the footnotes. says apologies you know to the you know Native <laughs> American population of, of Northern California at the time they would have said this you know so mm. I'm conscious of
0: it right I guess yeah. because it's a period piece they, you have to be authentic to the period and let's be real. It's yeah, a more latitude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: Exactly. Yeah. There were, you know, they, cultural norms were very different. Uh, you know, there, you could you know, say things. It's like, there's no way you could say that now. And right. You just said in so-called polite society. Yeah.
0: Right. I remember in the first book you mentioned, yeah, the war brides. Oh, it's, you could, you know, Asian white mixes. Yeah. White yeah. guys with Asian women. That was becoming into like, yes. now it's like super norm here, but that was like, uh that wasn't as, that was kind of weird, but not as weird as seeing an Asian man with a white woman, yes. right? Yeah.
1: Which was very transgressive. Um, right. And
0: that was my parents. So
1: that was how I sort of incorporated that idea into, into the books, because I always thought my parents, you know, were well ahead of their time, you know, in the early
0: 1960s in Ohio, an Asian man and a white woman. Yeah, mm. and did they come up? I'm assume I'm assuming they did, but did they come across incidents similar to the first? Like probably not as violent as the first book, but they probably yeah. came across some stuff like some my racist dad comments. Again, or, yeah, my
1: dad never really talked about that. My mom said that yeah, she was very conscious of uh of you know people there of uh, people looking you know uh, uh, at her, and even you know um there were people who said they worried about you know what about your children. Was some thought. and she, yeah, so, you know, how are they going to grow up? So, well, here, here you are, <laughs> and here I am. You know, <laughs> I was the only mixed race Asian kid in probably in a hundred miles, you know, in Akron, Ohio. But you know, somehow we made it through.
0: That's good. Oh, me, and you have a third degree black belt, right? So that, and you're six two, so that helps, right? Yeah. <laughs> it helps,
1: yeah. You know, being a little <laughs> taller and athletic, and yeah, of course, yeah. And I guess it was. I mean, uh, let me ask you guys a question. You know, growing sure. up, you kind of—it's like—is it expected as an Asian uh, guy, you 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 learn martial arts at least at some point, you know, in your life? Because I think it kind of felt expected. I mean, I was exploring, I was looking for that. Because again, I was this—you know—there was only a couple other Asian kids, you know, in my entire school. So I was actually trying to connect with some of these Asian things, and and martial arts was one way to do it. Mm. But I'm wondering if you guys felt that sort of like. Is it expected? Are you supposed
2: to learn, you know, kung mm. fu or karate? You want to go first, James?
0: Uh, sure. Uh, for me, my father made it a point that I should learn how to defend myself. And like, yeah. and at a young age, he's like, James, you want you want to learn to be able to defend yourself, you know, not fight people, but like defend yourself. So he signed me up actually for Sholakan karate, not mm-hmm. um, not not kung fu or anything. Right. I don't know. And he signed me, there was a school not too far from my house. So I did that and I was like, ah, it's all right. It's kind of fun. And I quit. And then like, you know, I, I tried swimming in middle school and some other sports, but I wasn't really like good at sports sports, like American, you know, American sports. Yeah. And I was just like, I kind of miss karate. So I went back to karate in high school. And then ever since then I've kept up with martial arts and I, I think, um, Just the the confidence of knowing that you know maybe you're not the best fighter of obviously, but that you can hand yourself in a fight in in more than the average population is is very it's it gives you confidence, right? And and Bruce Lee, of course, uh, we don't Asian American men don't have too many idols, but he's definitely one of them, and he's definitely give gave a lot of people, not just Asian men, but a lot of people in general, like uh, inspiration or uh curiosity into looking into martial arts because i remember one phrase he mentioned and obviously he's he's not a perfect character there are there's biographies about him and about you know his infidelity stuff like that but yeah. he and but in his good in his good light he did say he did mention how like martial arts his his um his health and his you know his career all those things he owes to martial arts the discipline he learned yeah. from it and also the mental, uh, stability. So that's, that's something I've always thought of. I thought of martial arts, not so much as a, just a physical practice, but a, a practice of perfecting character. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and discipline.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah.
2: Yeah. For, for myself, um, it was more like an external stereotype that I've experienced because you're Chinese. Oh, you must know Kung Fu because that's all anyone right. associated with Right. with um, being Chinese that and Chinese food and for myself um, it's because of my upbringing being a latchkey kid and my father being you know my parents divorcing all that stuff so I watched a lot of kung fu movies growing up especially <laughs> yeah. um because they were very accessible and those were something that that my grandparents were like oh yeah go ahead and watch it because it's Chinese and you can it's all in Chinese anyways and I, I grew up thinking oh that's that's like, oh, I can be kind of like a superhero with all those feats that they can do. And I always wanted and gravitated towards martial arts. And when my mom finally let me go take classes, that's when I started taking it more than okay. anything else. It's just like mm. cultural identity that I was like, oh, it's a very positive sort of cultural identity that, that was not untouchable, but with Chinese food back in the 70s and 80s, they go, oh, what's that? Kind of yeah. thing that reaction that smell or whatever it is but with martial arts no one can say oh you know kung fu that's such a bad thing or you know it, it's a stereotype in a positive way that i kind of gravitated yeah. towards mm. so, so there you go
1: i that probably pretty common amongst you know guys like us that it's it is it's the stereotype that you want to gravitate you know towards because i again i think it was a way to kind of connect with you know something that I you know was was hard to find at least for me.
0: Mm. I noticed you you use some kung fu in this book, so which is good, <laughs> which is yeah. which is fun, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You right about some kung fu, which is always fun. uh for like those who are not familiar with um some of the the, the topics in this book, uh, from like so uh, in this book you talk about MK Ultra, mind mm-hmm. control, or and yeah. you know kind of like. I guess, what, super soldier experiments kind of? Yeah. Yeah. Can can you give, uh, maybe without giving like too much detail away about the book, but can you give us a little bit about kind of the premise and the background for the second book? Yeah. So
1: MKUltra was a real CIA government operation. It started in the 1950s. It goes into the 1970s. And it was this attempt to use drugs, mostly psychedelic drugs, psychotropic drugs, Um, to try to do mind control or uh, potentially like uh, like truth serum, all that stuff. But really, it was about mind control because there was this feeling that the Russians and the Chinese were experimenting with these things and we had to keep up. So that was the overarching sort of program. And it was done to prisoners, soldiers. Uh, criminals it was it was it was pretty pervasive, but it was some of it was even done right out in the open and that's actually part of the story is that the government through some uh, pharmaceutical companies was doing uh, experiments on people and you could volunteer for these at hospitals and at some universities they were doing that because wow. psychedelic drugs like LSD wasn't even illegal, I think until like 1966.
3: Hmm. So
1: imagine that. Uh, there and so you see people volunteering, including a character that was a real person who's in the book, Ken Kesey, the guy who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was experimenting with this while he was a grad student at Stanford. Uh, there, so that was MK Ultra. Um, Midnight Climax was, the, was a small subset of that. And it was this even more insidious program. Uh, and it took place in New York and in San Francisco where the CIA used prostitutes and, and they controlled these brothels. And these girls would lure Johns in and they would dose them unbeknownst to that. So they weren't criminals. They weren't soldiers. They weren't foreign agents or anything like that. They were American citizens.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, this was the government kind of just absolutely fucking with them. Um, And it was late. Of course, all this is later discovered through a a fluke in the Freedom of Information Act. (laughs) CIA actually tried to cover up the entire thing Uh, in the 1970s. um, I forget the guy who was the CIA director at the time ordered all of the records to be just destroyed. Right. Mm. Unfortunately, because of a misfiling, uh, apparently some 20,000 documents were misfiled uh, in, in, in whatever records thing. And then during a public records, um, search, uh, those were discovered. It's like, oh my God, this is what they've been doing. And the CIA had to come clean on that. So yeah, this is real stuff that was really done to, you know, to people. And I, I, when you read about stuff like that and, and that, that background has been used by a lot of, you know, other authors and and content creators, movies, because it's fascinating because it really (laughs) happened. You know, there and then the whole super soldier thing was me sort of riffing on the idea of Captain America why not mm. I love books. you know what would happen if one of those experiments kind of worked Um, except it worked in a way that wasn't as what they had expected and that's where we get the character of Stephen Epps uh, mm. in the book and I'll, I'll leave folks to, to imagine what that that does but yeah he's been experimented upon and he's become something very very
0: dangerous mm. It, it makes me like, wow. So just a misfiling? That's kind of... <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's crazy. You know, yeah.
1: Otherwise, we would never have known. So this stuff was, you know, this information was misfiled. And somehow in, again, um, uh, uh, a freedom of information, you know, uh, dump, mm. they found it. And it led to, you know, they, they found out about the cover-up.
0: That makes me wonder, like, what else is not being, like, what was not misfiled? You know, like... <laughs> I, well I, I, just I,
1: ask Oliver Stone about the whole JFK thing, you know. So oh. uh yeah, that's the kind of stuff that you know the conspiracy theorists love to sort of pour over. But there's probably, you know, evidence would suggest there is probably a hell of a lot more that we don't know as as you know, ordinary citizens, uh, right. that's sort of being kept from us. Not to sound too, you know, too Illuminati or anything like that. Right, but, right. foil hat, yeah. Yeah. But it does make for interesting storytelling.
0: For yourself, for like, as far as um, kind of like an ethos or a uh, through line for your writing, are you, uh, are you? I guess in in, Katz mentions like he doesn't like bullies. Is that mm-hmm. sort of something? I guess what are some lessons or themes that you you feel like are important to you in your writing, yeah. that that hopefully you get across? Do you think about like, or you just want to write a good story and entertain people? Or uh, but like yeah. yeah, or is there some through line that you're also trying to do at the same time? Yeah. You know? I the through line
1: for me with these characters is about love and friendship. You know, um the cats and Molly and Shig, they really do love each other. You know, you have this obviously, you know, the the male, the 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 male-female sort of bond that we're very used to in stories, but there's this very real sense of friendship, I hope comes through between cats and shig because they went through some um you know some really tough times together they were, they were in camp together and that mm. was the, the core of my father's relationships with his two best friends for the for the you know throughout his adult life were two guys he went to he was in camp with and I mm-hmm. wanted to respect that and because you know again those are formative years and you go through something like that together you're bonded for life and I I hope that comes through with that because I I that to me was important and I'm a mm. big believer I have friends, uh, I'm, it's kind of unusual. My wife says this. I have friends that I, uh, people that I've been friends with since like grade school and middle wow. school, high school that I'm still very, very close to. Um, and I know most people lose track of their friends from high school. It's like, oh, I got one buddy from high school and I got a couple friends from college. Um, I feel like I've known some extraordinary people for a very long time and I don't necessarily just want to let them go. So mm. I think that for me, the idea of, of maintaining friendships over time that for me is personally important and i will mm. try to convey that through cats uh, mm. as well
0: i know you mentioned uh like your father was a very big inspiration for this character and mm-hmm. it was very surprising to see in the last book like Doroth- dorothea lang a very famous a yes. uh, black right. and white uh, f- uh she did photos for during the great depression she's most famous for the migrant mother photo yes. um, and then but she she took a picture of your dad yes wow dad, that's amazing i even
1: have it it's it's in the it's in the in the index of the or the the end notes of the book i was it's right. it's in the it's in the national archives so it was public record i could use it you can kind of see it right there yeah So that that was that's my dad that's
0: Yeah, Mr. Kageyama, okay. That was in April
1: of 1942. Um, Dad was reporting to an assembly center on Van Ness Boulevard in San Francisco. Um, You're allowed to bring two suitcases and it's the worst day of his life.
0: Ah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, So for wrapping this up, um, I I had a question about for... uh, yeah, there there the there is the it's interesting that we look at your book now, and it's a period piece, but even today there is very strong and national tension between or international tension between China, Russia, America, and what we've seen during the pandemic with anti-Asian hate and also like uh things happening to our communities. Uh it's interesting to see how like these these ghosts of the past still yeah. come come to visit us, right? Racism and you know, scapegoating. Uh what are you like what are your thoughts, I guess, on current like how how is something that you hope will your books or your writing or your work, your personal work outside of writing, mm-hmm. you hope could help maybe make today a better place or or yeah because yeah, yeah I, I do think about that it's like okay now china's the big bad you know even with like that senate hearing he's like are you from china he was asking the ceo of tiktok singaporean, right, the singaporean yeah. it's like yeah. no i'm i'm singaporean and he had to keep repeating himself and it seems like okay this guy's kind of bullying mm-hmm. <laughs> you know bullying this, this ceo now now there might there is a place to be asking oh is it does he have a connection with China um, you know th- there is a place for that but I think the tone the attitude the way it's presented it's yeah. you know like you can't talk to people like that it's messed up so I'm kind of curious to hear uh, your thoughts about that kind of stuff
1: you know I think you can tell uh, use fiction to tell great right, to use um, uh, to use use it as to tell to teach a lesson in a way that sometimes you can't through just a, through nonfiction or through explaining to people, it's like trying to get that, trying to convince them of something. Um, a story wraps the thing that you're trying to do in this outer, this, you know, this cocoon of something that somehow makes it maybe more powerful and more palatable at the same time. You know, we remember good stories, we remember good characters. And if anything, people remember, Hey, that guy, cats, that's a cool character, you know, really interesting guy and it maybe changes the way they felt about you know an, an asian character it's like oh mm. maybe not so stereotypical and the way he dealt with other people and that you know that there were there were gay characters in this uh thing there were there were chinese characters there were you know there, there was you know talk, well we talked about this i had the mafia in the first one so i guess you know oh. we're talking <laughs> cultural stereotypes here sorry again sorry italian <laughs> but again th- th- these were re- th- really they were real people at the time so um yeah, if you can use a good story to, you know, you know, underscore it's like, hey, be better people to each other. Yeah, let's do that. You know, okay. um, I'm all for that. And you know, at, at the end of the day, I want to tell a good story, um, but I'd like to do it in a way that you know that I feel ethically responsible about. Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: cool. Dan, yes. did you did did you have anything you want to ask? Yeah. Oh, I mean,
2: well i'm we can take that uh, my question offline is about um uh, the groups that formed because of the internment camps i don't know if you're aware well i'll ask anyways sure um my uh my younger son is actually into basketball and he joined this league the jap of uh, this basketball league that was formed from the internment camps because oh. there are a lot of sports mm-hmm. and for the longest time that you can only be japanese and be in this league or Japanese American in this league. Are you aware of these, these basketball groups? No, but that's kind of fascinating.
1: I mean, I mentioned in the, the background of, you know, Kat's story that he, he was a baseball player because he was an athletic kid. Right. um, And that he played baseball in camp. Cause yeah, right. I was aware that there was a lot of, um, they, they tried to make camp as normal as possible. And that included you know, sports, especially for the young men. um. So yeah, there must have been a baseball or like you said basketball teams, but the fact that there's basketball teams that are still Japanese American only 70 years later—it's like <laughs> how did that happen? Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. I I remember on um, playing in the league up in the Bay Area, and they had a restriction that only like three people who could be of non-Japanese descent be on the okay. team. Really? Oh. So I'm pretty sure it, it was like a something that came out of the internment camps because. Yeah. Uh, the Chinese groups, there are no Chinese groups like, like that at all. And these are leagues. You know, um,
1: that's maybe that it's maybe I would say that's maybe not the healthiest you know legacy for something like that. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, they talk about there's there's what's called social capital and there's inward facing and outward facing social capital. The outward facing is the best kind. That's when we're open and we're accepting other people. We want to interact with other folks um that's the really good kind the kind that gets a little insidious is when it turns inward and we find you know and we we start taking our cues from each other um a lot of a lot of churches become like this religion is one of those things that bonds people it's like it's us against them when -hmm. you start looking inward that kind of social capital can become kind of dangerous and that's to you know that league sounds a little bit borderline in terms of the way it's approaching that it's like well, we can have three non-Japanese guys, but they all have to be over six eight, kind of thing. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was okay. uh, maybe a way around that.
0: But well, you um, speak Japanese, Dan, so you you can uh, you can yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's ironically. Ironically, it, sure.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, they ask for birth certificates though, but wow. uh, yeah, I I was the only one who could actually speak Japanese on my team though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that should be like you know, it's like you should get a special dispensation for that. So
0: right. Yeah. I I wonder about that too. Is like, um, sure there 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 are there are there's like Asian American film festivals. There are you know Asian American writing workshops, and I I wonder about this 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 capital that you mentioned because I think we see that in other communities where like they maybe they don't have a a, a title to the group, but they help each other out. Certain communities yes. help each other out. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you see that with maybe, yeah, particularly maybe the Jewish community after World War II. They help each other out. You know, in in when in the New York, there's the textile industry there, uh, mm-hmm. and that uh, that they would help each other out. The Italian families, Irish families would help each other out. Chinese and,
3: family.
0: What's that? Chinese families. Coming Chinese to the West families.
3: Coast. Yeah.
0: Yeah, probably in your research you know like Chinatown was formed because yes. no one else would let them live anywhere else, right? They had exactly. to like they had to live in these these ghettos. Mm-hmm. And so it's yeah, it's interesting. I wonder I think there is a line i guess where it becomes just racist but i think there is still a place for ethnic groups if you know what i mean like as absolutely. far as like uh like uh, social groups in like like festivals film festivals writing groups stuff like that. Yeah, yeah yeah from understanding
1: your history understanding understanding who your you know, your ancestors were yeah absolutely there's there's value to that um mm-hmm. again i think that there are, at some point it can become maybe a little unhealthy right um but again, I think it, it, again, it's a question of degree. And, right. uh, but yeah, the, the, the basketball thing, that's kind of funny. Uh, yeah. I, I 70 sure years later. That's it, interesting.
2: Yeah. Oh, but I mean, my my kids' group has actually opened up quite a bit. Um, yeah. There's only like a few who are of Japanese descent. But I, I know that when I was growing up, I knew that about these leagues. And there are still some other basketball leagues that are primarily Japanese Americans in, mm. in LA. So yeah
0: well, ec- I, I was, yeah. Huh. yeah, and that's echoes of the internment camps i guess i believe yeah.
2: so yeah yeah, yeah. that's Pretty interesting much. and then the other thing we were talking recently with uh another psychologist and i was curious because um we were talking about our perception of the homeland and mm-hmm. those ideas and stuff like that and she had mentioned that um Asian Americans are actually a lot more strict than the the, the parenting of the, the Japan or China or, or wherever mm. you're from. Okay. And I was wondering if your dad had those ideas and ideals and if you were able to see and contrast, you know, if, when you went back to Japan, oh, they're not quite what I what I pictured them to be right. or Japanese people. Because, yeah. you know, your your dad came back or immigrated from to america at a certain period of time right. in japan Dad was born
1: in san francisco his his, so, his parents well, his parents yeah. He was, yeah. yeah but he was born to japanese parents
2: yeah right so the idea is like oh that idea of, of japan it becomes like a snapshot of yeah. like what Jap- japan is and if those values were passed on and i don't know if you were able to if you have the opportunity to actually see you know the way your idea of japan is and how japanese people should be versus how they really are now yeah. because every every culture evolves
1: yeah yeah. um my dad was not particularly strict compared to like i know a lot of asian parents were i had a couple friends who, and their parents w- who were very strict my dad was you know was a little looser than that but again he's still right. an asian parent like you know right. you, you expect to do good in school you expected to go to college expected to be a doctor, lawyer, or an engineer, right, mm. um, that kind of stuff. Um, so my perception, though, of what I thought, you know, Asian parents and, and what, you know, the, the, the homeland was, was, you know, through books and media and whatnot. But I did go, I was a high, in high school, I was an exchange student to Japan. And what that underscored to me was how American I actually was you go there mm. and think oh i'm you know because i don't look like the other you know kids in my school i don't look like you know anybody else around here there's a couple other asian faces it's like oh i must be different it's like no now you go over there you are american and right. that was very eye-opening it was actually i think it was very good for me too because it actually kind of put some things into balance you know there you grew up you know thinking you're different you realize you know i may look a little different but i am very much an american and that mm. I think is actually a, a, and ultimately that was a
0: really good lesson to learn. Mm. Well, so yeah, sorry, to go ahead, Dan.
2: No, I, I just want to respect your time because I know it's pretty late in Florida. I
0: appreciate <laughs> that. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, I we do have, um, I mentioned in our email, like uh, you yes. usually end with like two uh, questions we ask uh, all our I guests. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So one of the first questions is uh, you mentioned last time that board games was a great uh, hobby of yep. yours that kept you kind of yep. balanced. So for you nowadays, uh, what what else do you do that helps, you know, in your day to day keep you balanced? I'm, I'm assuming you're still very much in love with board games. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
1: absolutely. I played a five hour game this afternoon. I just oh, know, my got son. back at 830 with a friend of mine. Um, it's the hundred years war in, you know, four and a half hours. Like, yeah, it was pretty good. I still love that. Um, you know, uh, I'm getting, you know, as I feel like I'm getting older, I feel like I, uh, getting really staying very fit is still kind of a priority. So that is the other thing I, I try to balance it out with is, um, being very disciplined about, uh, working out and staying on top of that. Um, because I know that will pay benefits for hopefully many, many years to come.
3: Mm. Uh, and
1: all that. So I think that the, uh, the the balance between, you know, the body, uh, the mind through uh, gaming, which is uh, to me is a very cerebral kind of uh, thing. And then the writing, which I think is also, it pulls something out of uh, your head in a different way. Mm. Uh, so I think it's, it's finding that sort of, again, a, a bit of balance. It's the yin and the yang of that. Hey,
0: there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for- what kind of workouts are you, you're, You do you, do you still do cycling or do you weightlifting no, now? Unfortunately,
1: um, cycling requires a lot of time, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, the miles I, I am, uh, I am a classic gym rat. We have a nice gym here in our building and I try to take advantage of that. And I do love to go listen to podcasts and audiobooks When I go, you know, out for walks on, we have a really nice, you know, uh, park system that's right here. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, take
0: advantage of that. Awesome. Cool and then uh the last question would be uh yeah language corner Yay. yeah uh oh, language okay. corner uh so uh for me one one phrase uh so coming from your first book and you also mentioned again in this book uh the guaipo uh, the uh yeah the the yeah. what the i guess what I know, yeah what? foreign foreign uh Particularly white woman, uh, sorry, the derogatory term. Um, in there in man so that's that's Cantonese gui, guo, guai po, guai or oh, Guo, po, yeah. I'm not sure about the Cantonese pronunciation, but in Japan in, in Mandarin, it would be pronounced, pronounced uh, guai Uh and then the term that that's commonly used in like Taiwan and China in Mandarin would be like lao wai Lao Wai La-wai. is just like yeah. foreigner. That could be used for men and women, Lao wai okay. It's the character for like, uh, Lao just means old, and then Y means outside, outsider. So Lao Y old okay. outsider. <laughs> and then uh, another Cantonese term when I was looking this up that came up was like, uh Lao, uh, gui, gui Lao. Yeah, which Hello, is yeah, yeah, which is, just too, a, yeah. <laughs> which is just yeah, which refers not just barbarian. it's not gender specific, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> barbarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. Uh, it was always interesting to hear these, because I've, I've heard Cantonese uh, speaking friends, you know, <laughs> you know, like yeah, uh, yeah. S- say it, uh, yell it out, or um, uh, it, you know, when they're playing video games or something. like Ah, as a derogatory term, unfortunately, but yeah, uh, well, these were terms that were used to refer to uh, foreign people in uh, well, in those communities. But anyway, well, the Japanese use
1: "gaijin," gaijin, which is kind of neutral. But um, then there's a character here who also uses the word iteki, Oh Barbarian. Oh, <laughs> iteki. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, every culture has, uh, I guess, every language has that. There's again, there's those of us, you know, the inside and the outside. You know, mm. But I did, I did come up with a good sort of. You wanted a a a word from a a foreign word. I actually came up with one that we've been using here, and it's not oh. in the book. You ready? Sure. You ever, you ever heard the expression "herkle dirkle"?
0: Herkle dirkle.
1: No. Herkle dirkle. It's a no. Scottish phrase. It means to lie about in bed long after the time you're supposed to get up. So <laughs> it can be made into a verb when you're herkle dirkling. And I point this out, and I made the, I, I, actually showed the, the question to my wife earlier today, and I said, I, I'm going to use herkle dirkle. And I said because my wife is my wife and our dog have actually they've been perfecting Hercule Durkling. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yes, they're you know spending some time in bed after sort of getting up it's like oh here's your coffee it's like oh and then an hour later she's still on her phone watching it, doing this and uh, there's the dog curled up right next to her it's like man <laughs> have a good life there so Hercule, Hercule, Durkle. Durkle. it's a scottish word you should use it in everyday conversation it's actually <laughs> yes. a nice idea it's like yeah i could stay in bed for quite a while there i suppose
0: wow. Hercule, do you have any Scottish ancestry in in your family or oddly
1: enough? I do, which is (laughs) great. Yeah. So after the last podcast, a couple months after that, my wife and I went on our, we delayed our honeymoon. We went to Scotland for two weeks. Oh, wow. And So Scotland is is lovely. Now in my family, the myth was, is we are, my mom was mostly Irish, right? Hmm. My mom was a redheaded Irish woman. Uh, from Ohio. Molly is a redheaded Irish woman from Ohio in the books. My mother's name was also Molly. However, when you do the um, the DNA testing, now it comes back with the very specific sort of country of origin kind of things. I'm 16% Scottish, not, mm. not Irish, Scottish uh, there. So apparently the, the Scots actually were brought in by the English to colonize parts of Ireland. So it does make sense uh there that there were people that my ancestors had a stopping off point in ireland but they eventually they scottish to ireland for a generation or several generations i don't know and then eventually to the united states so yes i am technically i uh,
0: technically scottish Oh, irish scottish or just uh, scottish or scottish you know scottish wow
1: 16 percent scottish wow Okay. that was kind of it was kind of eye-opening it's like yeah i mean there's the the myth in your family it's like oh yeah we're irish we're irish it's like okay right.
0: dna comes <laughs> along apparently not apparently. <laughs> awesome dan did you have any phrase or uh, anything you wanted to share or yes yeah. uh
2: yeah oh uh, joe san san is the um old uh, mandarin way of saying san francisco mm. gold mountains
1: gold mountain yes, yes. i didn't know the train Chin- i couldn't pronounce the chinese word but i have heard yes
2: golden mountain yeah yeah mm.
0: like literally old gold
2: mountain mountain. yeah yeah,
1: <laughs> the <old> mountain. yeah, <laughs> yeah they were going to come here and they were going to get rich and then they were going to go back home yes yeah didn't usually work out that way no.
0: yeah no. well thank you so much for your time peter it was great chatting with you this the second yeah. time around yeah nice yeah. to
1: catch up with you guys too i'm glad you're Definitely. both doing
0: well yes and, uh, yeah yeah And yeah, married now, so yay, (laughs) married. Married life, yeah. yeah. It's no, no more, no more chasing, chasing ass. You know, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah, now can focus on other things like writing or or (laughs) yeah, important stuff. Important stuff. All right. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time, and we'll and hopefully we'll catch you maybe on the third book when it comes around. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye.